Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, here we go. Stand by. Three, two, one. The thinking atheist. It's not a person. It's a symbol. An idea. The population of atheists in this country is going through the roof. Rejecting faith. Pursuing knowledge. Challenging the sacred. If I tell the truth, it's because I tell the truth. Not because I put my hand on a book and made a wish. And working together for a more rational world. Take the risk of thinking for yourself. Much more happiness, truth, beauty, and wisdom will come to you that way. Assume nothing. Question everything. And start thinking. This is the Thinking Atheist Podcast. Hosted by Seth Andrews. Today is a great conversation, I think a critically important conversation. There's a video version of it. That YouTube link is in the description box of the show. Brad Onishi is a man with a pedigree, a man with a past. (laughs) Just want to set it up like a movie, Brad. (laughs) He has a background in evangelical Christianity. Brad, would I call you a zealot? Were you a man of great zeal? Oh, for sure. Oh, no, that's the perfect word. I was reading your biography or, or um, something on your website, and it was using the word deconstructing your faith or deconstructing Christianity. And I'm reminded of some apologist on Twitter that was talking about how, well, it's become sexy, right? It's fashionable. It's trendy to deconstruct. And I remember thinking about my own journey going, I don't remember anything glamorous or trendy or sexy about it i mean was it was it like that for you it's pretty lonely pretty heart-wrenching a lot of friendships lost a lot of relationships changed a lot of career path totally going the opposite direction and trying to reimagine who you are that's not easy stuff so sexy and trendy is is not how i think about it not how i experienced it i'm not trying to put you in a box how far did that deconstruction take you yeah, so I, I identify as uh, a secular person. I would, I think the, the best word for me is agnostic. I don't use, you know, I, I have so many friends in, in various spaces, atheists, free thinkers. I'm actually the chair of the secularism and secularity group at the American Academy of Religion. So uh, I'm in a lot of discussions with folks who are both studying and living out their secular worldviews, but that's where it took me that far. Now I'm, I am still a scholar of religion. So I'm a rel- religion professor. So as personally, where I, I may have landed in a non-religious space, my professional life is dominated by th- 
continuing to think about religion all the time. I don't worry too much about the labels. I've seen people get really pedantic about it. Well, are you, you know, an atheist? Are you an agnostic atheist or a Gnostic atheist? Or are you an anti-theist? And, you know, I'm like, oh, you have got to be shitting me. Like you cannot, (laughs) you cannot want to spend your time and energy arguing over this. You and I probably walked a few of the same steps because I was raised to believe we are one nation under God. And I had those, I'm embarrassed. I had those arguments. God's on the money. I mean, (laughs) to me, that was an argument, right? He's in the Pledge of Allegiance. We are a Christian nation. And I was totally oblivious to the real history of the country, the nation. I didn't know the Constitution. That your road? Were you there? Oh, for sure. I went to a church where the Christian flag and the American flag were always next to each other, touching, usually, uh, poetically thought that people who didn't go to church on Sunday were not only bad, you know, not on the wrong path religiously, but were hurting our country. You know what I mean? So all of the things you're talking about in terms of wedding the religious and patriotic, the nationalist and the spiritual, that was definitely there. And, uh, you know, I, I was ready to fight a culture war to make sure not only that more people knew about Jesus Christ, but that uh, they also knew that this was a, a Christian country and we needed to live up to that. Do you today have one of the best podcast titles, oh. names, or brands <laughs> I've ever heard? Because when you hear it, you're like, I got to go find out what that, what's going on here. What's the name of the podcast and introduce your co-host. So our show is Straight White American Jesus. And my, I do the show with Dan Miller. Dan, Dan and I were both evangelical ministers uh, in our early 20s and both left that became scholars of religion. So we kind of have this dual lens, you know, we we lived it, but now we study it and we see it historically and sociologically. And the name of the show is really polarizing because a lot of folks, you know, when I first tell them the name, they kind of look at me like, I'm not sure we're going to be friends or I'm not sure I can be your real estate agent or your, your, uh, <laughs> your anything. However, it's catchy. And, and people always tell me like, I, as soon as, as you just said, as soon as I, I heard it, I wanted to know more, but I often get, I need to say this, emails and contact from the Daily Wire and Fox News who want to advertise on the show because they think that I really do promote a straight white and American <laughs> Jesus. So <laughs> Wait so you have you've uh, validated the brand, yes. so to speak. Yeah. Yes. Isn't it interesting how and we've done a show on this, I think a few years back about how a lot of Christian cultures, their Jesus looks like them. You know, there's a white Jesus, black Jesus, there's a Native American, an Asian Jesus. You know, that's very telling, don't you think? You know, there's this philosopher, Ludwig Feuerbach, and I don't know if you, you know, he was a great atheist philosopher and, and a lot of non-religious folks, you know, really love him. But he had this idea of projection and he thought that religion is nothing more than self-projection, that you can learn everything you need to know anthropologically about a community just by looking at their gods or their god how how are they dressed what gender you know how are they imagined and so when you say that most christians have a jesus that looks like them i think i think that speaks into that self projection it also though reminds me that a lot of in america a lot of churches have a white jesus and they have black congregants or asian congregants and that to me is also telling when you've got a black church or an asian church and Jesus looks like he's his name is Hans, and he, he grew up in Sweden. Um, that's that's weird, yeah, you know. It tells you something. I'm thinking of some people in my own circle, acquaintances, 
and they're disgusted by non-heterosexuals. You know, they it, all the pejoratives, the homos and the lesbos are, you know, they betrayed God's perfect model for love and marriage, etc. Interesting, their God also has a hang up about gay people. And, you know, it is suspiciously a projection whenever we uh, we look into those various cultures. You've got a book that's coming out that gets into the phenomenon that we've been extremely concerned about. Christian nationalism slash white Christian nationalism. What's the title of the book? Title is Preparing for War, the extremist history of white Christian nationalism and what comes next. Got part of my story in there as a former evangelical and former Christian nationalist, but you got a lot of history starting in the 1960s coming up all the way till now and a little bit of a glimpse into what the future might hold. So you and I may have been, uh, let's say, in different universe is probably in the same Sunday school class singing onward Christian soldiers, oh, yes. <laughs> right? Marching off to war. Now, at the time in my brain, I wasn't thinking physical violence, but now I read the headlines and think maybe I was being primed, you know, for a jihad. I don't know. Did you go through that? And how do you relate that to today? So I'll give you a little story that uh, I relay in the book. I I grew up in in Southern California in the same town. I, I'm I'm born in the same town as Richard Nixon. Now Richard Nixon famously is raised a Quaker, and so am I. But that Quakerism is filtered through an evangelical kind of lens. And so you know, if some of you out there are thinking about Quakers, they love peace. They're pacifists. They're egalitarian. They're silent. You know, you go to Quaker meeting and there's no program, there's no hierarchy. And you may be non-religious, but at least maybe that's the kind of religion you're like not that bothered by. All right. You know, that's these people want social justice. They're egalitarian when it comes to gender. Well, none of that was true in, in my Quakerism or in Richard Nixon's. I was in ministry at a church for seven years and we had a prayer meeting every Tuesday. And every Tuesday, we'd open up the prayers that had been written on cards on, by the congregation on Sunday. And every Tuesday, we would pray for the police. We would pray for the military. We would pray that God would destroy our enemies abroad, whether that was in Iraq or uh, or somewhere else. In seven years, not one time did we pray for peace, despite the fact that we were a Quaker church, supposedly. And to me, that speaks into what you just talked about, that you know, the, the Christianity I was converted into was one that saw us at war culturally, politically, and that imagery dominated uh, James Dobson, you know, founder of Focus on the Family, originally in Southern California, now Colorado Springs, and all the headlines about the Q shooting and so on. He said that teenagers are the foot soldiers in the Second Civil War. So this imagery was deep and wide in the in the world you're talking about. We're calling God's crusaders into action. This used to be it used to ring a little more metaphorical. Not anymore. Yeah. Now it's, I wake up every day and I look for the headline that said Trump or one of his minions or one of the evangelical right-wingers actually physically said the word, mm -hmm. we need to take our country back, rise up in arms. Mm -hmm. Do you have that fear? Do you, do you log on with fear and trepidation? I do. And I think there's a way that we can miss this if we're not careful, because I think it's one thing to look for the second coming of January 6th and say, well, when that happens, then I'll know that we're really in the place of the threat of a second civil war. I think there's another way to look at it and say, all right, I logged on 
And I saw that in, in North Carolina, outside of Raleigh, I saw that somebody destroyed the power grid so they could stop a drag queen story hour. That's a, a rural place. It's one corner of the country. It's a small town. But you know what that is? That's political violence. I mean, that's terrorism. You're essentially saying there are people trying to have story hour in a way that I don't agree with. So I'm going to destroy the power grid. We just had the mass shooting that happened in Colorado Springs. We have these instances where people are taking over PTA meetings and making it untenable to hold the meeting because of the shouting and the violence and the pushing and the shoving. And if we miss that, I think we miss the ways that, as you've just said, the call for battle has transitioned from metaphor to reality, where people are willing to take it to the streets. There was the meeting of the Young Republicans, the, the fundraising gala in New York, and Marjorie Taylor Greene was there along with a number of right-wing activists, Jack Posobiec, and you know all of the, the kind of headliners on that side of the American right. And one of the things that was said there was, we have to be willing to take the fight to the left economically, culturally, politically, and in the streets. And so I do log on with trepidation, and I do expect that we will have further instances where people with AR-15s are going to break into libraries to shut down a story hour, or power grids are going to be destroyed, or Asian elders are going to be clocked on the head because of someone's calling the virus a certain thing, and so on, and so on, and so on. So I do think that this is way beyond metaphor at this point. I made a couple of notes. We had uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene saying that she would have won January 6th, the insurrection, if she had led the people and they had had guns. Of course, that leads us into a series of other questions. Guns against whom? You would have shot whom? What does that even look like? Uh, you've got Lauren Boebert. She says uh, she tweets December 12th, conservatives, we need to be on offense, not defense. Then you got uh, Dr. Mary Trump niece of Donald Trump, she said that he is, in her words, prepared to, quote, burn everything down. You watching Donald Trump? Well, what I'm watching is Donald Trump continue to be the figurehead of the GOP and to call on True Social for his reinstatement as president and the suspension of the Constitution. Okay. Uh, I'm watching Donald Trump meet with Kanye West and Nick Fuentes and then claim he doesn't know and this and that. And we could, we could get into a 45 minute discussion of how some of Trump's numbers are down with big GOP donors and they're really excited about Ron DeSantis or Tim Scott or, you know, someone else. And uh, maybe it's Glenn Youngkin or maybe blah, 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 blah. We could talk about the souring of certain evangelicals. On, we could. I also know that uh, in the latest poll, he was doubling DeSantis when it came to it, who would you vote for right now for president if you're a Republican. He's not been disavowed. He's not been repudiated. And as long as he stands as the figurehead of this movement, the guy that orchestrated and instigated, and I use those words on purpose, January 6th, how can we not fear more violence? We've already seen it. And this is the thing that I, I can't reiterate enough. Two years ago, our capital was overrun by physical violence, by a mob. Police officers lost their lives. And people like Mike Pence and Mitt Romney and Nancy Pelosi were steps and seconds away from, uh, from being overrun by a mob, hung out front of the Capitol. How can we think that we are in a normal time of any of any sort? It makes no sense. And I I I just I don't think that 
cultural and political amnesia is going to do us any good in this moment. Well, that leads me back into the mention that you had of the uh, domestic terrorist who took out the power station in a rural area, right? So he didn't run into some major DC plaza, et cetera, but he, this was a specific, how do I say this? You know, it's, it's a non heavily populated, non mainstream area. Do you feel like it's kind of the frog in the boiling water thing? You feel like this is like a one degree up, right? If we went zero to boiling, everybody would say, Hey, what the hell's going on? But now if we ramp it up here and there, it's now sort of skirmishes that slowly increase and slowly head toward more population centers. You see that? I do. And I, and I think that's what I, what I meant is that if we think of civil war as North versus South, and unless it's North versus South, these states versus those, here's the Mason Dixon and let's go at it. If we think of it that way, we're going to miss what you just said. We're going to miss that 40,000 people were out power because somebody decided destroying the power grid was was what they needed to do in an extreme act of violence, then allow the story hour to continue. If we miss that, we miss all the little fires everywhere that could and may and possibly will become the big fire that we often think of when we think of civil war. I have to do my due diligence. I, I hate that I have to do this. First of all, don't put a frog in boiling water. Two, that's a myth. The frog jumps out. All right. I have to do that. Right. I, I, I hate to live in the world. This is an enlightened audience, but I'm saying if somebody was to stumble upon that talking here with author, broadcaster, and professor Brad Onishi, do you like Brad or Bradley? Does it matter? Brad, Brad's fine. So I want to talk about dog whistles. Let's start with definitions. It's one of those things we hear the phrase, although we hear the term, define dog whistle from your perspective. So, you know, a, a dog can hear a frequency that a human can't. And so if you use a dog whistle, you're sounding a sound that only a dog will hear and, and others won't. So if you use a dog whistle politically, you're using a word or a phrase that certain people will hear and know and understand and others may miss because they're not attuned to listening to it and they may not understand the symbolism. Do you feel like there's plausible deniability in play? Because I always use the example of like the mafia Don, you know, somebody, Luca Brasi betrays him or something. I'm, I'm trying to remember the plot off the top of my head, but Luca, some guy named Luca betrays <laughs> a Don and the Don says, ah, it'd be a shame if something happened to him. Mm -hmm. Well, if you look at the letter of the language, you're like, oh, he's deeply concerned. But the dog whistle is somebody ought to take this dude out, right? Mm-hmm. Mm and Trump is a master at it. I see it all over Christian nationalism when they talk about religious liberty, rights, religious freedom. You want to speak to this sort of loaded language that they're using and their attempt to take over the culture? So I, I think a couple of things are at play. I think plausible deniability is one. So you can you can say things and then back off and say, of course not that that's not what I meant. I was being metaphorical. I was being I was using an analogy. Whatever whatever you want to say. So that's that's definitely at play. I think another thing at play that is often missed is the ways that those words that are considered positive are used as dog whistles. So we often think of a dog whistle as a negative word that is not quite as negative as the one it's standing in for. So if we say welfare queen, okay, usually that's a way to say something negative about a black person who lives in a city somewhere rather than using the N-word or another slur that 
the person using it knows will get them punished or or canceled or something else. We usually think of a dog whistle as a negative word that is in place of an even more negative word that you can't say. But there are positive dog whistles. So if you say family values, well, family sounds positive and values. Yeah, you're, you're a human being with a value system. Okay, family values. All right. How could I criticize that? But the history of family values discourse is a history, and I do this in my book, it goes way back beyond the 1960s. It goes to the 1860s. 1860s family values is used to justify slavery on the part of you know Christians everywhere. Slaves are part of our family. There are our children. If you get rid of slavery, you're going to destroy the family God wants. All the way to the 1960s. You're going to tell me my where I have to send my kid to school? I'm a parent. I know better than you. I don't want to send them to that school. And it just happens to be the school where black children are now allowed into the public school system. Family values, you're going to say that I don't know what's best for my family, meaning that gay folks and queer people shouldn't be near me when it comes to my church or my school or my library. So those are positive dog whistles, and they're harder to get around because if you're a journalist, if you're a, a researcher, if you're someone who's just in conversation with that person, how do you swiftly tell them that family values is a bad thing? Now you look like the bad guy. That's the genius of these positive dog whistles. I'll give you one example. Baseball game after the Flo uh, uh, George Floyd murder, and there's the, a lot of protest. Mets and another team are playing a baseball game. Everyone decides they're going to kneel before the game to show their solidarity with the George Floyd protesters and against police brutality. One guy doesn't kneel. After the game, he's a white guy. You know, the reporters are like, why didn't you kneel? He says, I, I'm a Christian. I can't kneel. And that stopped it. If he if he had said, well, I don't like black people, it's over. He's he's out. He's probably off the team. He's probably not even in the league anymore. I'm a Christian. And I can't kneel. And and, and you, the reporters are befuddled. Well, what do I say? Because if I criticize Christian, I'm going to get lambasted by a whole segment of the U.S. population. A couple of weeks later, somebody says, hey, what church do you go to? You said you're a Christian. And he says, oh, I, I, I don't go to church. I haven't been to church in years. So by using Christian, he's able to sort of say, I'm not kneeling because my Christianity won't let me kneel and protest to a black man being murdered by police, but he stopped everybody dead in their track. And that positive dog whistle, God, that's effective, right? God, it's that's like um, watching all of the nonprofits operating in the United States. The churches don't have to be nearly as transparent as everybody else with all their parsonage exemptions and all this you know, stuff that's going on that isn't revealed where others have to reveal it. And the excuse is, well, if yeah, you dig into my books, then you're an enemy of religious liberty. It's fascinating and extremely clever and shady. <laughs> yeah. It's maddening. I've got more questions for Brad Onishi in just a second. I want to talk about sort of the roots, at least the decades-long roots of what we're seeing. And I want to get into great replacement theory, which is one of the new fear terms that's being bandied about. What the hell is great replacement theory? And what are they trying to do with it? We're going to talk next. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Thanks for your support of this broadcast as a patron, where you can get the show two days early and totally commercial free. Patreon.com slash Seth Andrews. Continuing my conversation with scholar, speaker, thought leader, author, and co-host of the Straight White American Jesus podcast, Bradley Onishi. You bring something up, you know, you go way back into, you're in the, uh, you know, 19th century. There is this belief that the foundation, the groundwork for the Christian nationalist uprising of now was mostly a product of the 80s. Uh, you know, we had Reagan, we had uh, Jerry Falwell, Billy Graham's in the White House. You got the satanic panic going on. You've got the Family Research Council being founded. Fox News has started in the early 90s. Rush Limbaugh, right? That's late 80s. So everybody's like, aha, you know, it all started here just a few decades ago. But you, and I know that your book is going to deal with this, you say, no, no, this is a long game. It's a really long game. And let me just go back. Let me just start in the 1960s. I think that if you're saying, hey, look, 19th century is a long time away. I'm not sure I can read all that. <laughs> I'll say, look, hang with me in the 1960s. The 1960s are a time when we all know a lot of rights and representation are extended to people that didn't have them before. Civil rights movement, Voting Rights Act, immigration reform, the Feminine Mystique, 1963, Stonewall, 1969, The Loving Case, 1967, no-fault divorce, women entering the workforce in mass, on and on and on. White Christian patriarchal landowning folks are like, you're taking our country away. So 1964, who is the GOP nominee for president? It's Barry Goldwater. Barry Goldwater used the, the language of God and homeland. He used the language of freedom and liberty and getting the government off your back and putting God into your life. He talked about nuclear weapons. He had real no interest in policy. He just wanted to win the culture war. He was hyper-masculine. He told folks in the South, of course, I think black people should be able to live where they want, but I'm not going to make that law. Uh, Y'all should decide for yourselves. You know, wink, wink. I'm not going to like make the integration of our public square something that the law says. No, y'all can figure that out yourselves. He gets destroyed by Lyndon B. Johnson, right? Goldwater wins five states, okay? It's over. Ha! Laughing stock. But in the wake of his defeat, his foot soldiers had learned the language of extremism. They learned that it was about taking power at any cost, not about dialogue or compromise. Before him, there was Eisenhower, the Republican president of the middle way, right? The guy who spent so much money on infrastructure and government programs. They didn't want that guy. They wanted their way. So even though he loses... Paul Weyrich and Richard Vigory and Dana Rohrabacher, all the names that some of you know, started the Council for National Policy and the Heritage Foundation. And Dana Rohrabacher became Putin's favorite congressperson there for a while. They're all Goldwater vets. And they learn that the goal is not dialogue, compromise, or pluralism. The goal is power. And we're going to get it any way we can. That is what gives us the 80s that you just talked about and the 90s that you just talked about. It's the 60s and 70s of extremism. Goldwater, 1964, San Francisco. What's he saying is his acceptance speech. Many of you know it. Extremism is no vice. Moderation is no virtue. This is a party of extremism. And he's looking right at the country club Republicans, the Rockefellers, the Buckleys, all of the brass from the East Coast. And he's like, you know what this party's about? It's about God and freedom and extremism. 
And if you don't get on board, you don't belong here. I remember back uh, when the I don't remember. I mean, I read my history about the riots outside of the DNC convention and, uh, you know, during the the civil rights movement. And uh, I guess you would call it a dog whistle there where they talked about we need law and order. And we heard that from Trump. You know what? We need law and order. Well, there's messaging loaded within that term. And much of it has to do with race and gender and social justice, et cetera. You want to speak to law and order? You know, Phil Gorski and Sam Perry in their book, The Flag and the Cross, do a great thing. They talk about the ways that white Christian nationalists think about order. And what they talk about there is that there's a vision for the country as being properly ordered with white Christians having the cultural and political and economic power. And it doesn't mean everyone else can't live here. You can be Asian or black. You can be from another country. You can even be gay or, or or lesbian and so on. But you need to know that we are the ones who founded the country and we get to be on top. So the order is a certain way. That order gets disrupted. We reserve the right to reconstitute the order properly using violence. When we use violence, it's justified to put the country in the way that it should be. When you protest, when you riot, when you are upset about police brutality or inequality, that is not justified violence. And there's no way that it will ever be legitimate because there's no way that what you want for the country is legitimate. My co-host Dan Miller has a great book called Queer Democracy. And one of the things he does in that book is he, he says, look, nations and countries and states, they often think of themselves as a body, a national body. And so if you think about the way the white Christian nationalist thinks of the American body, they think of a straight, white, native-born American body with who speaks English with no accent, is patriarchal, heterosexual, and certainly Christian. Now, it doesn't mean that the parts of the body behind the scenes, the capillaries and the, the minor organs and the veins may not be that particular kind of, of flavor, but the executive functions should be the nervous system the brain, the head. So you want to put Barack Obama in the White House? You want to put a black man as the literal face of the country? It feels like the national body is completely out of whack. It feels like the national body is disfigured, like it's grotesque. And if we don't fix it right now, we won't get it back. It's like you wake up one day and overnight, something has gone very wrong with your body, whether that's a virus, whether that's bacterial infection, whether that's a limb. That's how white Christian nationalists feel when they wake up and see a black family in the White House or a queer person in Congress or Pete Buttigieg talking once again on the screen or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or on and on and on and on and on. You're telling me you want a Muslim like Ilhan Omar to have a voice here and be in Congress? You're telling me you want Kamala Harris, mixed race, Jewish husband. I don't know if I can tell you why it doesn't feel good, but I woke up today and my body doesn't feel right. That's what they think. The well, order that's usually followed by, well, I, I, I feel it in my spirit. You know, the Lord is telling me that, uh, that there's something wrong with this, you know, and I, I listen to the, to the voice of Jesus in my head. That's pretty convenient, don't you think? How many people have done how many horrible things and they've done so in the name of God? Well, and it's post facto. Like the reasoning comes, you know, you know, when you wake, I mean, I'm old now. I wake up, my knee hurts. I'm like, what did I even do? I didn't even do anything. My knee hurts, my back hurts. 
and I have to find out post facto why it hurts. They feel the country is out of whack. And then they post facto say, well, Jesus, God, it just doesn't feel right. We got to do something because this this isn't the America I want. You know, it's all post facto reasoning in my view. I'm going to be devil's advocate. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, he's black. Candace Owens, black. Kanye, you brought up Kanye or yep. Yee or whatever. Um, what's that about? I mean, this is not white Christian mm-hmm. nationalism, or is it? So I think there's two ways to think about it. I think one sort of plain way to to think about it is uh, Anthea Butler said about Herschel Walker. And Anthea Butler is a black scholar at, at the University of Pennsylvania, and she says, Herschel Walker is what the white people in power in Georgia think a black person should be. Uh, Yes, put him up for the Senate, but he is someone they can control. He's someone who will do the things they want, who thinks like them. He is someone that seemingly wants to be part of the establishment that they are and is trying to live up to their standards. So yes, he is the right kind of black person. Same goes for Elaine Chow, right? Mitch McConnell's wife and so on. The other way to think about it is, is Miguel De La Torre talks about it this way. He's a, he's over at University of Denver and I left School of Theology. He says, there's a way that whiteness is about more than skin pigmentation, that it's a regime of power, that you know you can be non-white and want to be part of that regime of power. And if you are non-white and want to be part of that regime of power, then you're willing to play by the rules of the game in order to get there. So Clarence Thomas is willing to say and do and be the very emblem of a Christian nationalist, a white Christian nationalist, somebody who is enabling a a system of white supremacy and Christian supremacy, even though he has a black body. Miguel de la Torre would say the melanin in his skin does not prevent him from aspiring to the whiteness that is uh, the systematic hegemonic power in this country. And so that's a way to explain it. You know, if we do, if we want to get away from some of that, it's just very easy. As long as you're one of the good ones, we'll let you in. But as soon as you get out of line, we'll get you out. And I see that as an Asian American. A lot of people think of us as the model minority. We're the good ones, right? The, the, the racists say. And then as soon as the pandemic happens and it's called the Kung flu, get out, get away from me, go back to China. Uh, I'm going to clock you on the head. You're the reason that we're all locked up lockdown, blah, 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 blah. So as long as you stay in line, you can hang around. And as long as you're useful for us, but if you get out of line, we'll get rid of you real quick. So when Trump uses China virus dog whistle. For sure. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's loaded. And on the surface, he's like, well, I mean, it originated in China. Mm-hmm. It is a virus. What in the world would you ever have? You know, why would you protest? But when you see it's you, I mean, and language is so... I mean, there's so many layers to these onions, you know, and and the plausible deniability of it does drive me a little bit crazy because I try to engage in discussions and people will just blink at me. Why? It's China. It's Wuhan. <laughs> and then I just leave. I'm just like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> right? I can't do it anymore. Okay. Okay. So let's talk about the great replacement theory. I have discovered in my own life, and I believe... Um, I'm trying to think of the studies that have reported that not just in the United States, but worldwide, people who lean political conservative, they travel less, they don't engage as much outside of their tribe or routine, they experiment less. And in some ways, they are more easily frightened. And this is a gross generalization, but this is a trend. 
So what I see, we see the utility of you take fear language, you target an easily frightened demographic, you scare them, and then they circle the wagons. So now we've got, you know, Democrats are devil worshipers that drink in the blood of babies. You got trans people, they're all pedophiles. Pronouns mean we want to erase gender. Gay marriage, oh, that means you want to wipe out straight marriage. And then there's the great replacement theory. Would you like to take us down that road? Brad? Sure. <laughs> not, not, I mean, not really, but I mean, um, no, I mean, explain what the, this fiction, this horror fiction that they're selling out there. So great replacement theory is really white replacement theory. Okay. So it's folks who are saying I'm white. I'm worried that I'm going to be replaced. All right. So let's, let's pick that apart. And I'm going to, I'm going to explain it in the way I think about it. And I know not everyone's going to agree with me, but that's okay. I think of whiteness as nothing more than a signifier of power. People are not white. And I had a friend say this the other day, like, well, what about when a Danish family does this? Or, um, And I said, Danish people are Danish, right? When you do Danish things, you're doing Danish things, not white things. There's a difference. If, you know, when I go to my wife's hometown, it's a lot of Polish folks. She's Polish, right? In the Northeast. We go to a Polish deli. We do make some certain foods, right? We're doing Polish things. Now, does that mean that she's not a white person? No, but it means you can separate white from an ethnicity, from a, a cultural tradition. White is nothing but power. So Italians in the 19th century, not considered white. They were Catholic. They were from a part of Europe, not considered civilized, not white. Same with the Irish, Catholic, poor, not white. So you can see to get into the club of whiteness was really about status. It's really about class and acceptability, really about something more than simply, do you have pale skin, right? So when people say great replacement theory, and then we say white replacement theory, what I hear them saying is white is the signifier of power. And if you have greater diversity, if you allow for other cultural traditions, other religious practices, other ways of thinking, other foods, am I going to be replaced? Will I, will I actually have to think about my status in the world? Will I have to reflect on my social categories? Will I be just sort of in a world that doesn't privilege me? Will the order of society not put me at the top by default? Oh no, I'm now worried about being replaced and it's turned into a zero sum game. You know, I, I have a, a little baby and a lot of things, people tell you weird stuff when you're about to have a baby, right? But one of the things people told me, I think is actually quite true is it's not that the baby replaces something in your life or takes away from your ability to go do fun things because you got to take care of the little one. It's your heart expands and you're able to to love more. It's not about taking love from something or something else in your life. The white replacement theory person never thinks about it that way. They never think that the more folks we have, the more rich we are. I don't know about you, but when I travel, when I meet new people, when I get to go to new places, I just think I'm rich. Who knew I'd get to live this way and experience these things and talk to these folks, eat this food. The white replacement theory says it's either me or you. It's a zero sum game. And that's why you turn your opponent into a demon or a monster, because it's us or the monster. Who's going to win? It's an apocalypse. There is no choice other than the existential threat to me or the vanquishing of you. And that's a really sad way to live. And it's also a really, really destructive way to build a society. They see the world like pie. Yeah. If there's a slice for you, that's one less slice for me. 
gay marriage being a great example as we talk about marriage equality in this country for some reason a lot of the evangelical hetero married couples that are raising hell they're raising hell but i'm like well what exactly did that just take away from you let's say two consenting adults of the same gender go and get married and share life together what you know if that what's that line if someone else if gay marriage affects your marriage you or your spouse are gay right (laughs) (laughs) if there's something going on i think it's like they just don't want to share the world with anybody that they deem icky well i think that i think that icky is really good because if you think about that body metaphor i used earlier we train our nervous systems to think of certain things as like threats right like again i have a little kid and so you're always telling that kid hey that's dangerous that's going to give you an uh, an ouch right so if you're trained to think of gay people as icky as gross and you're like, I don't want that around me. And I don't want that in my, in my society. It's your body's nervous. You're, you're not giving any good reason other than you just think it's gross. Right. And that's not a good reason. And we should not have to accommodate you for that in any way. We are not on this earth to keep everybody else comfortable, Brad. Damn it. That's just where we line up <laughs> with the book. I, before I let you go, come on, give me the brochure, man, because I'm going to link it in the description box and I'm going to push everybody to your show and to your work because you're amazing, but uh, slug it for me. Okay. Well, so a lot of great books out there about white Christian nationalism. A lot of them are by my friends, journalists who have investigated, who've studied this stuff for years and have, have really given us the nuts and bolts. There's some others out there that are memoir, you know, people who lived evangelicalism and are giving you their story. This book is really both. And it's hard for me to say this, right? But, uh, you know, you mentioned it earlier about yourself. I feel like I was a Christian nationalist. I was in a church that thought God and country went together. I have a lot of stories of how that manifests in my life and in my community. And I tell those stories. And some of them are, are hard. Some of them are, for me, embarrassing. But they provide a window to somebody who has never lived this as to how somebody could think this how somebody could get into this world and this life. But there's also just the historical view that says, look, here's all the nuts and bolts of how we got here from the 60s to the 70s, from Goldwater to Reagan, from focus on the family to uh, Vladimir Putin, from John Birch to satanic panic to QAnon and on and on and on. So I'm really trying to give everybody a bifocal view. Here's the history. Here's the memoir. Here's how they go together. Damn it, your answer gave me one more question. Just hang on. Just hang on. Tell everybody on your side that just to hang on. How would you have approached someone like you as a Christian nationalist? Every tribe is guilty of dehumanizing the other. So we talk about the Christian nationalist, and we'll, I mean, they're all MAGA hat wearing insurrectionists. But the truth is, many, I think, are good people are desperately doing their best to live good lives. They believed. They're doing the right thing. They want to do the moral thing. You'd agree with that, wouldn't you, Brad? I would. And I here's what I would say. And I, I think this is hard, especially for, for me and you and probably a lot of people listening, is we're the kind of folks who want to talk about reason and facts. We want to talk about evidence and data. That's what I always want. And I think the best way, if you have a loved one, a cousin you're going to see for the holidays, a parent, a, a friend, and you know that this is where they're at, uh, religiously, culturally, politically. If there's a chance to talk about things, uh, if they say something flippant about immigrants, if they say something mean-spirited about queer people, there was a part of me that used to say, well, here's why you're wrong, and here's this, and here's the numbers on immigrants and work and taxes. And now you know what I say? I say, hey, what scares you about that? Like, when you talk about immigrants, what scares you? 
what's disappointed you in the last couple of years about this country? Um, what is it that you feel uh, is just making you angry about the state of your community or um, uh, how this place is working? What is it you want? What is it you hope for? Uh, what is it that would make you feel as if there was a reason uh, to feel a sense of expectation again? When I start asking people about their feeling and their emotion, their responses are not always the typical vitriol, the typical, you stupid liberal, you don't know anything anyway. And here's the statistics I learned from Ben Shapiro and from, from everyone else. Instead, they might actually give me a human response based in, in what they're actually afraid of, what hurts them, what disappoints them. What scares them about raising their kids in a world beset by all kinds of threats? And then they might actually let me talk. And they might say, let me say, you know, I'm scared too. I'm hurt too. I'm disappointed too. And I, this is why I do this, this, and this, or I believe this way. And then we might actually get into how we address our emotion. We might get into how we address our feeling by our politics and our beliefs and our ideology. And I think that is a way, if you have an interpersonal setting that might be a little more effective than the, hey, guess what? I think Ron DeSantis is an, uh, a fucking asshole. <laughs> what do you think about that, cousin Bob? You know, I mean, uh, it is it, tempting. I mean, we I think we've is. all fantasized. You want to reach yeah. across the table and grab Uncle Volney by the shoulders and just say, what the hell is wrong yeah. with you? Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I get that. Yeah. Uh, he is a co-host of the Straight White American Jesus podcast. He is author of the book, Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. He is not the hero we deserve. He is the hero <laughs> we need. No. Bradley Onishi. That's, <laughs> that's not true. Hey, dude, it's been so much fun hanging out with you. All the links in the description box and all success in your endeavors. You're doing important work. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And thanks for uh, just thanks for the invite. Really glad to be here. Follow The Thinking Atheist on Facebook and Twitter for a complete archive of podcasts and videos, products like mugs and T-shirts featuring The Thinking Atheist logo, links to atheist pages and resources, and details on upcoming free thought events and conventions. Log on to our website, The Thinking Atheist. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. .com. 